Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Aaron McMillan opens the Scriptures. I don't know if you've noticed, the world can be a little chaotic. You never know what's going to happen. I was scrolling through the news last night. Not a good idea. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're on your computer or your phone. You know, you're reading probably, if you're reading the news, about the fires in Hawaii. Man, that's tragic. You can't help but come across some post about political drama, some post about a conspiracy theory, some post about Russia and Ukraine, some post about the stock market. We could go on and on. If you are a glutton for punishment like me, you also find out that the Dallas Cowboys lost their first preseason game yesterday, which that wasn't a surprise, but I mean, it's still depressing. This is the world that we live in. And you know, it's, we can laugh and chuckle, but we're really talking about tragedy. But I think in a way, we're just so far from it. We just kind of shake our head and then we just keep scrolling and we just see more stuff. And we kind of just shake our head. And, and it's one thing to scroll and, and shake our heads, but man, it's another thing when the issues start to hit close to home. It's another thing when you're having conflict at work or you're not performing the way that maybe you should be. And now all of a sudden the worry's creeping in that maybe you're going to get fired. And, and then what are you going to do? And, and how are you going to provide for your family? And it starts to snowball there. Or maybe you walk into the doctor's office and you get hit with a diagnosis that you weren't expecting. And all of a sudden, you start worrying about, man, there's a lot of ways that this could go, and none of them seem very good. You're monitoring your bank account, and instead of going up, it's been going down progressively. And now all of a sudden, you're wondering how you're going to pay the bills in just a few short months. The anxiety of the bills that you know are going to keep coming just starts to form like a ball in the pit of your stomach. You look at your children. And you wonder how they're going to grow up in a world like this. What's going to happen to them? Where they might end up? Will they be happy? Will they be successful? And at times you might be filled with hope. But then other times you may be filled with dread as you start to think through all of the worst case scenarios. There's many students in the room and they're about to start going back to school. Wondering, worrying, are they going to be accepted and liked? Are they going to make the grades? Are they going to live up to the expectations of their parents? They're wondering if they're going to make the team or make the band or land the part in the play. And then their anxiety grows as they start to scroll through social media, comparing themselves to their peers, hoping that they won't be the one who's left out, singled out, made fun of or embarrassed, like so many are in today's world. And those are all big, serious things. And then then there's just the little things, like when you got up this morning, you're wondering, man, am I going to get my pew when I come to church? What should I wear today? Man, why is this car not moving in front of me? How long is this sermon going to be? We get anxious and we get stressed, and this is the reality of life, right? There's just a thousand things that can tempt us into worry and stress and anxiety, which is why this sermon series, and I hope this sermon, serves a very important purpose, because the answer that we're trying to get to 
is, well, what do I do? How do I stand firm in a world like this? How do I stand firm when trials come, when difficulties come, when situations that I never could have imagined or expected come? How am I, as a believer, to stand firm? And so we've seen some instructions already so far over the past three weeks. Pastor Keith has told us that we are to stand together, that we are to be joyful, and that we are to be gracious. And so in our text today, we're going to be back in Philippians chapter 4, and we're just looking at two verses. And in these two verses, Paul will give us two more instructions on how we are to stand firm in the Lord. And it's going to directly address the fears, worries, anxieties that tempt us to stumble instead of stand. So I hope you're there in your Bibles. I'll just read the text for us as we begin. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Here Paul gives us two very short and sweet commands. Don't worry, pray. Don't worry, just pray. But I'm sure, as many of you may be thinking, that is a lot easier said than done. And I know that's true. Because otherwise, he would have just said, don't worry, pray. Signed, Paul. See you later. Close the book. Put the pen down. But he doesn't. He goes deeper, and so will we. But as we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that you would bring your wisdom, your spirit, your truth to us this morning. I pray for clarity of speech. I pray for compassion and empathy as we walk through some maybe difficult things here this morning. I pray that you will be honored through this sermon and that you will help enlighten our minds and hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So in this verse, verse 6, the first verse, Paul's implying that we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make when we face that difficult circumstance, that that situation that was unexpected. We can either fall victim to anxiety, or we can turn to God. And he makes it abundantly clear there is only one choice for the believer. He says, do not be anxious for anything. Instead, turn to God in prayer. And so at the outset, it's really important that we just mention two things. First, there's a difference between legitimate concern and sinful anxiety. I know this is true because even in the same book, just a couple chapters earlier, Paul uses the same verb for anxiety to commend Timothy on his care and concern for the church. And in 2 Corinthians, he also encourages the church to care, or this same word for anxiety in a different sense, but it's the same verb. He says you should be caring for one another. So at the outset, we should understand that there is biblical concern that is good. But someone I was reading described that as there's a ditch on either side. On the one side, there is apathy. Who cares about anything? And on the other side, there is sinful anxiety. 
So while we acknowledge that there is biblical concern and care that we should pursue, we need, and what Paul is addressing here, is a specific type of destructive and sinful anxiety. Secondly, we should also acknowledge that just telling someone, don't worry, pray, may not be the best thing to do when someone's facing a difficult situation. Yes, it is really the essence of what Paul is saying here, but I can almost guarantee you if someone is going through a real struggle or real stress and having and dealing with anxiety, you telling them, well, don't worry about it. Paul says, don't worry, just pray. It's probably going to come across as uh, insincere, disingenuous. It's just going to ring on hollow ears, even if they are believers and know that is true. These are dual commands, and they are commands, but I would say that they can be some of the hardest to put into practice in our daily lives. And so Paul goes deeper than just don't worry, pray. So what I want to walk us through this morning is three reasons, three pretty simple reasons why we should avoid anxiety and instead turn to God. The first reason is that for the believer, anxiety is powerless. It's powerless to do anything good for us. Anxiety can be a powerful force, but not in a, in a positive way for the believer. There's a reason that Paul gives the command, do not be anxious about anything, because that won't help anything. It's powerless. It is destructive by nature. This verb that I mentioned for Anxiety here is actually a compound verb. It's made of two Greek words. The one is to divide and the other is mind. And so we can think of anxiety as a divided mind. And so Paul is warning against having a divided mind, but divided between what? And I think as we walk through the text, it becomes pretty clear that Paul is drawing a contrast between being consumed or controlled by the things of this world and, or against, being consumed or controlled by the things of God. This is the battle that we face. This is the choice that we face. And if we give in to anxiety, we can expect destruction, anxiety, fear, worry. They're emotions that are given to us by God. They're not inherently sinful, but they become so when we become so preoccupied with our own lives in our own circumstances, that we lose sight of God and His kingdom. And so, yes, there is a difference between this healthy concern and sinful anxiety, but that's where the warning comes, because even legitimate concerns can soon consume us and become sinful anxiety. We need to understand that anxiety is destructive by nature. Proverbs twelve twenty five tells us that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. There's three categories that I think through when I think of the destructive nature of anxiety. The first is just physical. Anxiety plays a legitimate physical toll on our bodies. It will rob you of sleep. It will make you tired. It can be causes of indigestion, heart issues, heart palpitations, ulcers, and like the list just goes on and on. It can produce other anxiety disorders like OCD and all kinds of other things, panic attacks. These are all products of anxiety and their physical manifestations of this destructive force. 
It is also destructive emotionally. Someone who is suffering or giving over to anxiety is often dealing with anger or mood swings. They're short-tempered. They tend to go towards isolation. These are emotional issues that are, are happening when anxiety creeps in and begins to control our minds. And then it also affects us spiritually. It it affects us because it allows doubt to creep in. It allows contention between people to bring in. Envy comes into play, all surrounded in the realm of anxiety. None of these things are good for the believer. Anxiety is powerless to help. It is destructive by nature, but it also diminishes our faith. So what I want to do is kind of keep your thumb in Philippians And turn back to Matthew chapter 6. We're not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to kind of summarize it. Hopefully you've heard a little bit of it. We'll kind of pick a couple verses out. But when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, I think he's actually drawing from Jesus. Because, you know, Paul isn't the only one that said, do not be anxious. Jesus says, do not be anxious in the span of 10 verses three times. And it's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And anxiousness or anxiety is actually, I think, the biggest treatment that Jesus gives throughout the whole entire Sermon on the Mount, which covers Matthew 5 through 7. But look at Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're going to start in verse 25. What we're going to find is that Jesus says that anxiety diminishes our faith because it reveals a lack of trust in God. Okay, verse 25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you, what you will put on. And he says, isn't your life more than just food? And so then he gives them a couple of examples. And he says, hey, look at the birds. Like, where do they get their food? Well, obviously God gives them their food. And then he says, well, aren't you more valuable than a bird? And then in verse 28, he says, and why are you anxious about clothing? And then he points to the lilies of the field. And he says, listen, King Solomon didn't even look so good compared to these lilies and these flowers. He says, who clothed them? Well, God did. So that's verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown to the oven, will he much more clothe you? And here's the key. O you of little faith. Jesus is saying, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat, a.k.a. the things of this world, because when you are, you're demonstrating a lack of trust in God. You are demonstrating a lack of faith. And he continues, it's not only a lack of trust in God, it's a focus on self. Look at verses 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, he says again. What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Why? Because that's what the world thinks about. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. But what? But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says your problem when it comes to anxiety is you're focused on my life, my food, my clothes, my wants. My will, my fill in the blank, the focus is on you. And Jesus says, that's your problem. That's causing you anxiety and it's revealing a self-centeredness that is not becoming of a follower of Christ. 
Because what the followers of Christ should be doing is seeking Him first. Seeking His kingdom first. It's not about us in the Christian life. And then we get to verse 34. And he says, you know what? Anxiousness also reveals a lack of perspective. Therefore, do not be anxious. Third time, direct command. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What Jesus is saying is, listen, the Christian life isn't about the here and now. It's just not about today and tomorrow. It's not about the things that he's already referenced, the clothes and the food and all of that stuff. He's like, no, you need to have a bigger perspective than that. You need to widen your eyes to the things of God and not this world. We need to shift our gaze to Christ and let him guide our steps day by day. We have no business taking the troubles from for tomorrow and bringing them in today. Today is hard enough. Let's not make it worse. It's my paraphrase of Jesus' words. And then Paul tells us, not only is it destructive by nature, not only does it diminish our faith, but it doesn't change anything. We skipped over the verses, verse 27, chapter 6. In Matthew still, which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Jesus says, worry, anxiety, it doesn't do anything for you. It's impossible to help you. It's unproductive at best, but I would say it's debilitating, life-threatening at worst. You know, in 2019, there was a study, um, Penn State did a study. It was a small study, small sample size, but they took some people that were clinically diagnosed with GAD, general anxiety disorder, okay? And they said, let's do a little experiment. I want you to keep a journal, 30 days, write down everything you're worried about. And then we're going to follow up and see how many of those things came true. And so they did that. And what the study came back and said was 91.4% of the time never happened. What the people were worrying about never happened. And the rest of the 8 and 9% of the time, one out of three people handled it a lot better than they thought they would. And so it was a small study. It was published. But I went back, well, does anyone else do anything? So Cornell University did the same thing, but just a bigger study and a longer time. And guess what? They came with practically the same results. So 85% of their participants never experienced the things that they were worried about. Never happened. And then they found that 79% of the people who were worried about something, and then that thing actually happened, 79% of those people were like, oh yeah, I actually handled that a lot better than I thought I would. So when you put those together, what we find out in that study is like, well, pretty much 97% of the time, there was nothing to worry about. And so surprise, 2,000 years later, what we find out is that the data backs up what Jesus said. You can't do anything about it. It's not going to change anything. And really, it's not helping you one bit. So do not be anxious. In my weird searching of things that might be relevant, I also came across a, um, it wasn't an official study, Pretty sure it was a blogger. And then other bloggers tried to verify it. So take it for what it's worth. But found out that hamsters in a cage go on a wheel. And apparently 
they could run like five to six miles a night. Now, the only person I know that really knows anything about animals is Nathan Hamilton over there. And he didn't believe it either. So I was doing a stupid amount of research trying to find about how far a hamster could run. And it doesn't matter, but the concept is here, okay? I think it's true. Multiple bloggers (laughs) and Wikipedia, okay, Uh, verify (laughs) five to six miles, which means that a hamster might might run between 6,000 and 8,000 miles in his lifetime. That's a lot of running. All right, that's not really the point. It's just a little bonus trivia information. You can tell your kids when they come back, all right? But here was a can I came across it in, a, in an article about anxiety or counseling or something, and this is what this person said, and I think it really does uh, matter more than how long a hamster can run, okay? But this is the correlation they made, the comparison they made. And this is how it is with worry. A lifetime of fretful running with no destination in a cage of your own making. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate no matter how far a hamster runs. The truth is there. A lifetime of fretful running, no destination of your own making. It's a great picture of what Jesus is pointing out. It doesn't change anything. It's not helpful. It's unproductive. It's powerless. So this is the type of destructive, faithless, useless anxiety that Paul is addressing when he says, do not be anxious for anything. It is a powerless state of mind that we must refuse to be mastered by. But Paul doesn't just stop with a prohibition against anxiety. He then goes on to give us the prescription for anxiety. And this is our second reason that we ought to turn to God instead. Simple truth. Prayer is powerful. This is the rest of verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What does prayer do for us? Why is it so powerful? Well, we start with the fact that prayer reveals our dependence. Really, anxiety is about a battle of control. Are we going to be in control? Are our circumstances going to be in control? Are we going to let our circumstances control our mind? Or are we going to be dependent on the Lord? And we show our dependence by going to the Lord in prayer. We go to Him with everything. New City Catechism. Catechism do with our kids from time to time. We'll get back on it soon. It says, what is prayer? Prayer is pouring out your heart. To God. You know, we don't pray to give God information. We pray to align our hearts with the mind of God. This is why the psalmist, Psalm 62, 8, trust him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Pour out your heart. Not just on Sunday, not just at church, not just before meals. It's a pouring out of our hearts to God. There's a, a Scottish minister in the 1800s who took a hold of the same idea. This is what he says. Prayer in secret is a pouring out of the soul before God. But listen to what he says next. And if it is not a pouring, it is not prayer. Anything left behind, cherished in you, but concealed from God, vitiates all. It takes away the comfort from you and hinders the answer from God. 
I had to pause and think, how many times have I kept things back from God? How many times have I hindered my own answer that I was seeking because I refused in my own pride or arrogance? I don't need to go to God about that. We go to Him with everything. He uses three words. He talks about prayer. He talks about supplication. He talks about request. We could get into the nuance, but the point is, go to Him with everything. For the things that you need, for the things that you want, go to Him. We go to Him with everything, and we go to Him as children. We go to Him as children. In the same spirit of children, when they ask their fathers for things. Jesus talks about this again, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 now. And He's saying, hey, you dads out there, you're actually kind of evil, but you still know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? I generally would love to give my kids everything they want. But you know what? I'm a limited guy. I got limited resources. I can't give them everything they want. God doesn't have limits. There's no restrictions. But you know what? What else? As much as I want to give my kids everything they want, sometimes I tell them no. Like, because it's not good for them. Like every Sunday when they go into my office and see my big box of candy. Can I have a candy? Can I have a candy? No, it's 8.30 in the morning. You cannot have candy. No, it's 8.35 in the morning. You still cannot have candy. (laughs) Why? Because I want to crush them? No, because I care for them. And I care for you. And I care for me. And I want to be anxious about that. But how much more does God know us? How much more does God know what we need? How much more does God know what is good for us? And so we go to him as children, knowing he is our loving father who has unlimited resources and only our best in mind. Now these next things are going to sound very much the same. And it's really just kind of three aspects of some of the same truths. So it reveals our dependence, but it also reveals our devotion. So we'll move through them quickly. Thanksgiving is crucial in prayer. Why? Because it reminds us of all that we have to be grateful for. It puts us in a posture of humility. We're ready to receive whatever God gives because we know it will be good and it will be right and it will be for our best. So what do we thank God for? There's a million things, but here's a couple categories. Maybe. We pray with thanksgiving for who He is. We've already said it. He's a loving Father who cares for His children. We pray with thanksgiving for what He's done. You know, we need to take time in prayer to remember the past blessings of God, to remember all that He's done for us and how He's acted in the past, to remember how we don't deserve any of it. We pray with thanksgiving for what He will do what he has promised to do. It puts us again in this posture of anticipating what God will do is what I want. And so I'm going to be thankful for whatever that is. And so we pray with thanksgiving. At the same time, prayer then reveals our faith. We trust now that he cares, which is why Peter can say, cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. We trust that he answers. Because he is that loving father. And so we ask him for the small things and the big things. 
We trust his plan. We recognize that he is the supreme and perfect God. That he is sovereign over all. That we can only find satisfaction as our mind is conformed to his. Talking about this concept, uh, Spurgeon uses the illustration of a little boy. And this little boy was really faithful in his daily prayers. But I'll paraphrase the illustration. But he was a brat. He was a pest. He drove his parents crazy. And so his mother finally confronted this little boy. He said, listen, this is really hypocritical of you to pray and then be a brat and do all these things. She just assumed he was pretending to pray. This was his response. No, mother, indeed it is not. For I pray God to lead you and father to like my ways better than you do. And it's funny, and we chuckle, but listen to what Spurgeon says next. Numbers of people want the Lord to like their ways better, but they do not intend to follow the ways of the Lord. Sincere prayer submits and trusts to the will of the Lord. It follows and walks in His ways, not ours. So Paul has warned us against anxiety. He's given us the antidote for anxiety in prayer. And then in verse 7, we're going to see the third and last reason that we should turn to God when we are tempted to worry. But before we move on, we should note that this is not a magic pill. This is not a special formula that we just get to pull out of our back pocket when we have an urgent need. What Paul is describing is a state of being. What Paul is describing is a way of life. What Paul is describing is spiritual discipline over time. Because we know each day is going to bring its share of troubles, anxieties, and fears. And so what Paul is talking about is developing a habit. So it's not about, oh, panic. Oh, let me go run to God in prayer and he will fix everything. That is not at all what Paul is describing. But what he's saying is, as we cultivate this life of prayer, as we reject the temptation to worry, then look at what we receive. Verse 7, peace is promised. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We get peace. Not because one day we sat down and prayed a specific prayer. Oh, I don't want to worry today. I'm going to pray so I can have peace. It's not transactional like that. But as we cultivate and develop our spiritual life, what we find is that peace is given in return. So what is this peace? (laughs) Well, a lot of people have said a lot of things. And anyone who claims to know exactly what it is, is lying. Because the very first thing it says is that you can't understand it. Okay, but what, can, what do we know about this peace? It is a spiritual peace. Okay, when Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, what he also said was, not as the world gives do I give to you. This peace that comes from God is not of this world. It is spiritual. It is of God. It can only be given by him. It can only be insured by him. It can only be found in him as we seek 
his kingdom. It is a transcendent peace. That means we can't understand it. It surpasses our understanding. It's beyond us. We can't map it. We can't plan for it. We can't deduce it. It is beyond our wisdom. But it is also a protective peace. Now this word, guard, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard. It's a military term. And Philippi was a military establishment. It was a Roman outpost. It was a, a big deal and a lot of, had a reputation, a military history. And so the Philippian church dealing with a lot of persecution and struggles and I'm sure anxiety would have been in tune to this word. This peace that you get, it's going to guard you. It's going to protect you. It's going to stand watch over your hearts and your minds. What does that mean? Well, it protects our hearts. There's probably a thousand things, which is something I have a couple things for each one. What does it look like for the peace of God to protect our heart? Well, I think it protects our heart from fear because we know perfect love casts out fear. It protects us from temptation because when we have the peace of God, now we are satisfied by a greater pleasure than sin. It protects our heart from guilt through assurance of the forgiveness of sins through Christ. This is how the peace of God protects our hearts, protects our minds. Protects our minds, I think, chiefly from doubt and speculation. Why? Because we have the witness of the Spirit in us. This is the peace of God. It keeps us from putting an inordinate amount of care, concern, worry, and anxiety of the things of the world because it helps us see things in proper perspective. It protects our hearts and our minds. But really what Paul is saying is not just talking about the head up here and the heart up here. This phrase, heart and mind, it's used all over Scripture. It really means everything. It encompasses the whole thing. It's all of who we are, the inner man or woman. Isaiah 26.3 captures this. You keep him, the whole thing, the whole person, in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so this is what we know about the peace. And my guess is there's still some asking, well, can't you tell me more? Like, can you tell me a little more about exactly what this peace is and how do I know if I have it? Is it a warm, fuzzy feeling? Is it like I just go into a trance and feel like I've been transported to heaven? Is it like all of a sudden I'm just going to have this wave of calm rush over me? Well, I don't think so. At least not most of the time. Which is good news and bad news. The bad news is it would really be convenient if it was a warm, fuzzy feeling, which actually I'm not sure I've ever felt. It would be really convenient, though. Because if I had that warm, fuzzy feeling or this like sense of calm that just rushed over me, I'd be like, oh yeah, I got it. I'm doing good. I got the peace of God. And then if I was like miserable, I would know, whoa, I'm doing something wrong. Well, it's not that. I'm 99.9% positive it's not that. It can't be just that. That brings us to the good news. The good news is that if you're not feeling the warm fuzzies and you haven't had that sensation, that's okay. Because that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have the peace of God. I'm sure it does incorporate a sense of well-being, of calm. But I think it's less of a physical sensation. And it's more of an assurance in our souls that allows us, that gives us the grace to walk today. And this is where it gets hard. God gives us grace and peace for today and not tomorrow. In our hearts and our minds, and that's enough. We know that the Lord will sustain us, 
that he will provide, that he will prove himself faithful. No matter what I may be facing today, no matter how difficult the circumstance, the peace of God is what keeps my mind and heart not from bad circumstances, but what keeps my mind and heart fixed firmly on him and away from the worries and the cares of this world. And so what does this look like in the practical sense? I think the peace of God looks like walking into the doctor's office, knowing that God is in control, even after a terrible diagnosis, and then trusting and resting in the promise that he will see you through. That's the peace of God. The peace of God looks like kneeling at the foot of your child's bed, praying that they might be used for God's glory. No matter where that may take them, no matter what that might entail, you are giving your children to the Lord. That's the peace of God. The peace of God looks like simply being content with what he has given to you today. The peace of God looks like giving up my desires and saying, not my will, but yours. The peace of God looks like offering forgiveness to those who have hurt and betrayed you because you know the depths that Christ has forgiven you. I think the peace of God can even look like crying out to God. I believe, but help my unbelief. The peace of God looks like wiping away tears from your cheeks as you struggle to understand why, but then still walk in faith day by day. I think the peace of God looks like holding your loved one's hand as they slip into eternity. And yet again, through tears, you can rejoice because you know they are in the presence of the Lord. You might, not, you might say, well, that, none of that sounds very peaceful. And I say, because it's supernatural, because it's beyond our wisdom, beyond our sense. But I can also guarantee you that that doesn't happen without the peace of God. It's the peace that can only come from God himself. It is what guards our hearts and minds. We must commit then to hearing from God through his word and by prayer. Three reasons we should not be anxious, but instead turn to God in prayer. Anxiety is powerless. Prayer is powerful. Peace is promised. I'm going to warn you, you're about to be anxious. We're not done. We're almost done. Don't get too anxious. We forgot three words. We didn't forget them. We just haven't got to them yet. And they're probably the most important three words of the passage. The last three words. In Christ Jesus. And here's where it really matters. In Christ Jesus. Only in Christ Jesus are we even able to cast off anxiety. Because we look to him as our example, who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, who has been afflicted and pierced for our transgressions, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who was tempted in every respect but did not sin. We can cast off anxiety only in Christ because he is the only one who can make the poor rich and the weak strong, who comforts the afflicted and gives hope to the hopeless. It is only in him that we can rest from our burdens, lay aside our anxieties, and find refuge for our souls. Only in Christ Jesus are we even able to enter into prayer. 
So we look to him as our advocate, who sits at the right hand of God our Father, who has given us access to his grace, by which we can come boldly into with our prayers. He is the one who has taught us to pray. And it is through him that we can have confidence that the Father hears us. And only in Christ Jesus are we able to obtain peace. He has given us peace with God. First and foremost, through the blood of his cross, reconciling us to God through faith. He has given us peace through his indwelling spirit, who provides not only peace, but joy and hope and power. He has given us peace through the promise of forgiveness of sins. He has given us peace through the breaking down of the walls of hostility and division between people and people groups. He has given us peace through his promise to bring us unto completion, to one day present us before God holy, blameless, and above reproach. This is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, and it can only be found in Christ Jesus, who is the Prince of peace, which means that the truths of these messages only apply to those who are in Christ Jesus, who have responded to his offer of salvation in faith, trusting that his death, burial, and resurrection is the only means by which we can obtain eternal life and claim the promises of Jesus, including his peace. And so if you've not trusted in him this morning, there is only one message for you, and it's very simple. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins. Repent. Cling to the cross. Know today all the blessings of being God's child and experiencing his peace. It is only in Christ Jesus that we are able to cast off anxiety Enter into prayer and obtain peace. It is only in Christ that a man named Horatio Spafford, after learning about the tragic death of his four children at sea, it was only in Christ that he was able to pen these lyrics. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so it is with us, that only in Christ are we able to sing, it is well with my soul. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, there's so much left unsaid here today but we trust your spirit is at work. Lord, bring strength to the weary, bring comfort to the hurting, bring hope to the afflicted, bring healing to those who hurt, bring confidence to those who doubt. Lord, we bring it all to you, everything to you in prayer. Lord, I pray that we can stand and sing it is well knowing who you are, knowing what you've done, and trusting in what you will do. It is for our good and your ultimate glory. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. 
May God bless you as you grow in your walk with Him this week.